Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. It's afternoon in London, it's morning in San Francisco, and this is going to be a great podcast interview. This is a little bit of a fanboy moment for me. I've long admired Stamen, and to be honest, I've been a bit puzzled about how you could run a successful business in map design as opposed to just a one-man self-employed operation. So now is my chance to welcome Eric Ruddenbeck, the chief executive and founder of Stamen, and Alan McConchie, who is the lead cartographer at Stamen. I could gush for ages about Stamen and their cartography, but even better, I can get Eric to do that. So Eric <laughs> and Alan, hi, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Eric, start us off. Introduce yourself. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, we're big fans as well. I'm Eric Rodenbeck. I'm the founder and creative director here at Stamen. Started the shop in 2001 and have been lucky along the way to work with talented people like Alan and others. And Alan, introduce yourself. How long have you been there? Yeah, hi, I'm Alan McConkie. I've been here since about seven years, I think. Before that, I was in graduate school studying OpenStreetMap and managed to land my dream job with a team that was actually doing a lot of the work I was researching. So, very Brilliant, exciting. brilliant. Living the dream. So, Eric, tell us, how did you get to start this company nearly, well, it's 20 years ago now. Yeah, this is, this is our 20th year, which is mind-blowing. <laughs> If uh, yeah, if it were a kid, it would be it would be in college now. Yeah, <laughs> it's changed so much over the years that it's it's tough to know where to start. But I uh, started the shop because I wanted there to be a place where the business decisions and the creative decisions were made by the same people. All the other companies that I'd been in, the CEO made the called the shots, and the creative people fell in line. And I wanted something different than that. I had gotten excited about data visualization at my first dot-com job at Quokka Sports way back in the late 90s and got interested in this idea that data could be used as a storytelling medium and that you could get people excited on the internet by showing them data in different ways. And so when I left there, I tried and failed twice to start some web design companies. They both flamed out within about a year. And what I did was pick myself up and use those mistakes to do something that wouldn't make those same mistakes again. <laughs> I'm good at I'm good at making mistakes and I'm getting better at learning from them. So in 2001, I found this the URL that I like the best, Stamen, and, and got started. Why Stamen? Does it mean something? Yeah, it means a bunch of stuff. I think it's a bridge hand and it's also a way of describing fibers that come together and it's also a flower's penis. Um, and right. I liked I liked those three things. I thought it was kind of fun and provocative and interesting, but I also like the notion of a pollinator about something that would kind of hang on mm -hmm. the internet and attract things and send seeds out and, and collect them also. It's not just a straight thrusting impulse. It's also a, a collecting and a, and a pollinating and a cross mixing. Um, and I, I like that metaphor for what we were doing. And it's also cool. a flower's penis. Cool. But, so you'd started out as a designer, I, I guess, and then you got into sort of data and presenting information graphically. Had you worked with maps before you started Stamen? Kind of. At Quokka, we did quite a lot of maps. We were mapping, the main project that I started on was a map of these sailboats in the Whitbread around the world, the race. Uh, they were they were sailboats that had been, uh, the race was is very, very well known in the sailing world, but the internet was not. And so this was the first time that GPS sensors and 
internet hookup had been connected to these boats that were that were racing around the world. So we made maps there, and that was kind of, that was an inspiration of just that. I mean, this was of course before OpenStreetMap at all, so everything was custom. So I'd, I got to see firsthand what it took to to map things, but then also to not just have them be maps of things, but have them be entertainment vehicles, right? So that you could you yeah. could get people excited about. I mean, the, the sailboat races were the perfect foil for people caring about location. You could you could plot your own virtual boat and sail against the sailors that were racing it. It got people pretty excited. I can imagine. You know, back in two thousand two thousand and one, I was working for a big map info partner in the UK, and. Internet mapping was just starting to happen at that stage. Yep. And I can remember asking the uh, CEO of MapInfo at the time, who on earth is going to want to use internet mapping? Yeah. And sort of five years later, of course, we all knew the answer to that. But at the time, when you're talking about this was really new stuff, wasn't it? Yeah, at least for, for regular people and designers to be able to get their hands on these technologies. I mean, and then the other watershed moment was when Google Maps first launched. I think that was in probably 2005. Mm -hmm. And we looked, we took one look at that and thought, that's it. We're done. No one's going to ever need us to make maps of anything ever again. Everyone's just going to use Google. And that's the end of it. So it went from, it went from nothing <laughs> to, to done in my mind in about four years. But that, uh, that yeah, that, I was in time, time has shown that people need something as well as Google. So yeah. Alan, what about you? How did you get into cartography? Yeah, I think I grew up in a family. We all, everyone loved maps. My grandparents had a gigantic wall map on their wallet. As a kid, I would examine in detail for hours. It took me a long time to realize maps could be a job, though. <laughs> right out of college, my first programming job, not my, post, my first programming project as I was trying to get a job, was this website called the Pop versus Soda page. Here in the U.S., we have regional a regional dialect difference of whether people call things like coke and pepsi whether they call it pop or soda and this is kind of in college i was interviewing people everyone i met as i was meeting people from all over the country and figuring out there's some geographic differences here made a map and then and then i just didn't work in maps for a long time because i thought well that was a fun project but this can't be a job right and then I finally realized that it was i went back to school and was starting graduate school around the time yeah like 2005 2006 when Google Maps appeared and when OpenStreetMap appeared and got really interested in what does it mean now that maps are part something that, that non-professionals can become part of. So I was excited to like learn about OpenStreetMap. I was the first one to add any data to OpenStreetMap in the country of Albania. I was visiting some friends there and it's like, oh yeah, I could oh, I'll be the first the first <laughs> mapper in Albania. <laughs> and yeah, so then and then yeah, realizing that it's a fascinating thing to research, studying the people who are doing stuff with OpenStreetMap, like like Stamen, and then ended up meeting a bunch of Stamens at conferences and stuff and got, got to do it for the rest of my life, apparently. Okay. So, you know, I've been in this industry for nearly 25 years now, and I've run businesses, I've sold businesses, I'm now re pretty much retired. People still ask me whether... Is that a real job making maps? It's an amazing thing. No one seems to think that uh, it's a profession, but of course it is. So, Eric, talk to us about what you do at Statement, what the company does and what you personally do. Sure. Well, the, the company is, is set up to help people communicate visually with their data, whatever that means. So it's everything from OpenStreetMap-based 
custom cartography for people like Facebook to maps that we make on our own to maps of climate change and how it's going to interact with bird migration patterns to maps of human emotion for the Dalai Lama. We're by design all over the place. And we find ourselves just continuously interested and intrigued by by the pipeline of projects that come through. It's, it's, uh, it's as varied as I could want it to be. And we're always jumping from one to the other. So it's the it's the variety of the of the work that for me is, is the, the best thing about it. We just ink to deal with a with a university to help them tell stories about nuclear weapons and how the patterns of belief that allow people to continue to let nuclear weapons proliferate. It's all over the place. And it, it and so but the common thread is data and the common thread is visualization. So we talk about but not maps. So well we talk about maps as a kind of data visualization. It's almost like right. there's this field of data visualization and some of it has geospatial information attached to it. And those are maps. Hmm. And, but I would be hard pressed to define, especially these days, what a, what is a map and what is not a map? What's a diagram? What's a data visualization? I kind of don't care. Mm-hmm. As, <laughs> so long as we're getting paid. <laughs> um, so th- that's what we do. And, and, uh, you know, again, some of the, some of that work is, is what you'd call a traditional a map where mm-hmm. you can find your way around and use it to, to get driving directions and find health patterns in California and things like that. And then some of them are kind of more abstract. Well, I don't know if abstract is the right word, but they're not, they're not spatial in the same way. They're not connected to no. latitude and longitude points. And, but yet there's still a lot of spatial information to be understood. So I'm just wondering, have, have you done a lot of stuff about the pandemic in the last year? Or have you stayed clear of that? We we have. Alan, do you want to talk to those or should I just go for it? Yeah, I'm, the one that I got to work on was about basically at the very beginning of the pandemic, we, I'm, and I'm, I'm working on a blog post about looking at all of our, our notes from our Slack channels about like how we were trying to find things that we could contribute. What could we map? What could we visualize that would help out? But yeah, we got a call from this group of researchers who were working with data from Facebook about aggregated mobility trends. So basically using completely anonymous data from Facebook that could tell people in this state or this county are moving around more often than they were before, or they're staying home 80% more than they were before. So right. we got to help you know, make, the, make, make some maps of that and make some charts that show you know, which regions were really locked down hard, which ones rebounded really quickly, that type of thing. Right. It, yeah. Okay. So going back, right. Eric, so, so what are you actually we're in a, doing? We're in a bar. Right? We're supposed to be in yeah. We're supposed to be yeah. in Yeah, we're in a bar. So what do you actually do there? I mean, do you still design maps? Yeah, so I, I <laughs> we there's a drawing that I made years and years ago when still working with my, my first partner, Mike Magursky, and it was almost <laughs> just a return to the phallic metaphors. It's like I was straddling with one foot in design and one foot in running the business, and the, the fence between those just got higher and higher and higher and higher, and eventually I had, in order to avoid getting clipped, I had to step off of one and onto the other. So I stopped making things about 10 years ago, and um, so I'm squarely on the kind of on the hustle side of the business, I'm kind of the chief evangelist. I give talks about our work. I've been doing this long enough that I have a network of peers that will feed us work. So I spend a lot of time talking to them and I do a lot of business development and marketing. So I'm, I'm, I'm mainly talking. And then from time to time, I'll come in and get lucky enough to be able to creative direct a project, which is a, which is a, a treat for me because I'm not usually connected to the day to day. I was terrified that the quality of the work would suffer when I stepped away from it and it's only gotten better. So that's been a really wonderful <laughs> yeah. surprise. That's always a, a delight, isn't it? When you're a doer 
and you get to the point where you have to step back from doing it, whatever it is, developing, designing, and then you hire great people and you look and you realize, actually, they're even better at this job than I am. Totally. It's been the case with with business as well. Most of that work is now being done by our general manager, Jim Stanley, who is you know, much better at it than I, than I, than I'll ever be. So grateful for, grateful for that. And for, you know, the others at Stamen that are, that are carrying it forward. Well, and that's also how you grow a business. Totally. You, know, you can't do it all yourself. Nope. So how many people have you got now at Stamen? It's in the, it's in the 20 range. Wow. Uh, we've, we have a lot of contractors that work with us now. I was always against that. I always was interested in the idea that we would all be more like a family, that we would take care of each other and we would all, uh, really be on the same team, but through a number of different events, I've realized that contracts are actually really great. So all told, it's about 30 people that we work with on a regular basis. Wow, that's amazing. I'm I'm so impressed, you know, because it's still bath. You know, I know that there are big design businesses in graphic design and infographics and everything, but within cartography, that must make you one of the largest specialist cartography houses in the world. Is that true? I hadn't thought about that, but it totally could be. I always think of us as tiny. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, if you were a, a software development company, you'd be small, wouldn't you? But, right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are some massive cartography design businesses that I've never heard of, but I've been in the industry for 25 years and I don't know them. Yeah, maybe I, I would guess that they're the, the larger groups I, I think of as more kind of GIS specifically focused, right? So there's yeah. there's companies that manage the invasive species lists for the army corps of engineers and they have yeah. surveyors you know there's 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 lots of groups like that I, I don't know another and i'd be glad to be wrong uh, yeah. another 30 person data visualization design shop so switching slightly we've talked a few times the phrase osm open street map has come up in our conversation and alan do you guys only work with osm or do you use other stuff we we do a lot and as i said there's a kind of a gradient of the base map work to the sort of thematic data visualization map work to data viz that doesn't have anything geographical in it. And certainly like the primary thing we're usually working with is data that clients bring to us that is going on top of a map or becoming part of a map. When we talk strictly about the base map work, almost exclusively we use OpenStreetMap. There's been times where we've done design work for like Bing Maps, but that was about 10 years ago where we were using their in-house data. We've done some work with with here as well. But usually it's base map design using OpenStreetMap. And, and usually that's the reason people, clients will come to us when they need a new base map or they, they want to get off Google or they want to get off some other provider and they, they want a bit more control over their own base map. They realize they have to do that with OpenStreetMap, basically. They have no other options mm-hmm. and, and they come to us because we've had that type of experience doing yeah. base map design before. I mean, that's been great. That's been so fun to just to be to be able to say that we're able to get people off of Google Maps and onto their own platforms with Facebook as a as the first, hopefully, of many use cases. So if you're a big tech company and you want to get off Google, hello. Yep. Okay. No offense, no offense to our friends at Google. No. We have a um, good relationship with. Yeah. Uh, the ability to to theme a map for a specific use case, you know, whatever it is, you know, I mean, uh, the first time you released the those soft grayscale maps, for example, and it was like a a light bulb moment for people like me because you're making sort of traditional choropleth maps and they just look t- 
10 times better against a soft gray background than against a full colored background. Now, somebody else could have done that, but nobody else did do it, you know, and, um, and I, you know, I can see all sorts of reasons why people would want custom base maps, you know. And I guess yep. for Facebook, and I know we said we're not going to talk too much about Facebook, you've used the house colors and things like that and stuff like that so that it will fit better into the the real estate that they've got on their website and everything. Yeah, that's no. a, sort of a continuation of, of a theme. I mean, I think the first time that I really understood the expressive potential of this was in maps for the London 2012 Olympics mm -hmm. and their colors were just wild. You know, they had this whole like pink and green and yellow and things were shooting around all over the place. And they, they said, you know, go to town, make us a, make us a map that looks like the London 2012 Olympics. And that was the furthest that I had seen it pushed up until that moment. Right. At least in a commercial context. Yeah. So what are the chat, the benefits and the chat we've talked about the benefits, I think, but uh, what are the challenges of working with OpenStreetMap for you as cartographers? Yeah, well, I think also just one more benefit maybe we haven't talked about is just that the, along the lines of what we could do for the London 2012 or what we could do with the, our watercolor map style, which really is based on OpenStreetMap data, but just looks totally different. And that's something we could not have done with a proprietary map data set. It's like the only way we could do that is because you can get the very raw data from OpenStreetMap and then do whatever you want with it. So mm -hmm. not just the fact that OpenStreetMap is free and not just the fact that it's got really good quality in lots of the world, but that you can just get at it and do what you need to do with it. That's one of the one of the key things that really helps mm -hmm. us make that flexibility. That said, yeah, the, the other side of that coin is OpenStreetMap is very complex. You have to deal with the complex data structures. It's not cleaned up for you. It's not like necessarily, even the data is not necessarily structured with display or rendering in mind. It's structured in this form that's grown up over the years as people have tried to figure out what is the best way that we can describe what something is in the real world while also building on the simpler way that we used to describe it in the database without having to throw out the whole database. So the way it's evolved organically makes it really difficult in, at times to, to process it to the right way that you need for, for the rendering that you're working on. That's definitely one of the headaches. And of course, Really rich data in some parts of the world comes hand in hand with very sparse data in other parts of the world in OpenStreetMap. Yeah, and also, I guess, you have to really understand the data to be able to start to apply cartographic styling to it because mm -hmm. you get different people in different parts of the world using different tags to describe the same sorts of things. And if you're not careful, you either miss loads of stuff in the rendering or you get all sorts mm -hmm. of things that should be the same rendering differently. It's It must be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we can kind of look at how we've done it before. We can kind of look at how the OpenStreetMap default rendering style does it. We like I always follow along the the discussions on the the GitHub repo for that because that's where a lot of the the cutting edge of how do we put a map rendering for this particular new feature that's developed in the database. We can learn from other maps, and that's also some of the benefit of this being an open source sort of ecosystem. But yeah, you just there's always something new that we have to understand and learn about every time we make a new base map when we're trying to show some particular thing that we in a way that we haven't really dealt with it before. I mean, the, the example that I that I always return to is just the the things that are you know everything in OpenStreetMap gets a tag, whether it's a house or a road or a mm -hmm. you know motorway or whatever. The the one that makes it clear to me that the Americans and the English are 
two countries <laughs> divided by a common language is, is just the, the tagging of docks, like docks along the water. Like mm. for us, a dock is the thing that sticks out into the water, whereas in Britain, the dock is the thing between the things that stick out into the water. It's the space. Right. And they're labeled, they're labeled the same in, you know, so the London dockyards are going to be different than the San Francisco dockyards. Yeah. So we talk about the water and you talk about the bit that you tie the boat up to. Yep. yep. Yeah. And I guess as some of the big tech businesses like Facebook and Amazon and Apple, to a lesser extent, get involved in the project, they're going to try and either introduce or overlay some consistency in those descriptive tags. Yeah, to some extent. I think, although there's only so much you know, consistency you can, you can force on a, a crowd of people doing different things. Like, I, so mm. I think the consistency is not necessarily, although I guess there is some level of sharing uh, like of some of the processing scripts so that we mm. can kind of, everyone who's making a map knows, all right, here's this, you always apply this one, this one algorithm to process your docs into however we're going to style them. So that, right. there's some things you can do as like a shared processing level. I think also one of the great things that the, these larger businesses are, are helping with is just more the consistency of making sure that the tags are complete and that they are applied consistently around the world. Like doing things like the turn restrictions where a road meets another road, whether you can turn left or right. You know, those are things that the volunteer community started doing, but it's really hard to tell when a city has that complete or when they've only got it in the neighborhood. And those are the kind of things that this kind of the corporate assisted mapping is going to really help with to do some of those things, fill in those gaps that the volunteer community may not get around to doing or may not be motivated to do. Right. So when you're working with OpenStreetMap, what tools do you use? Are they all in-house tools, or proprietary tools, or or what? A bit of everything throughout history i guess so a lot of the you know back in the early days even before before my time but like in the the era of mike mcgursky and and what sema was creating a lot of the tools like cascadenic which was a precursor to you know cardo css a lot of the stuff was developed partly or fully at stamen make these maps and then gradually we we really relied a lot on the stuff that was being either either created by mapbox or facilitated by mapbox so we used we use Carta CSS. We use the tile mill all the time, and and all the time we we will use these larger tools, but also mix in a bit of our you know, in-house stuff for the purposes of like what is the type of QA that this client needs? You know, how do we need to integrate it into their you know rendering pipeline? So a lot of the, there's client-specific custom things, but more and more we're using the tools that are that are out there that other people are creating either either from from organizations like Mapbox or from the community, like things like Maputnik, we use a lot too. Right. Okay. And just thinking back, Eric, back in the day, and I think we're going back more than a decade now, you guys created field papers, or in fact, I think it was walking papers before it was field papers. Yep. And I think one of the first times I helped to organize a mapping party with a group of people, we used walking papers to enable them to go out and map an area. And I just discovered when I was sort of doing some research about you guys that that's still there. You know, I mean, it's called field papers now, but it's basically, it's exactly the same thing. Can you explain how field papers works today and who's using it? 
Yeah, and I should start by being really clear that project was a passion project that my then partner, Mike Magurski, cooked up and, and developed. And so he, he deserves all the credit for that. Lots of people helped along the way, and, and, and I helped too. But it's super important to me that people get credit for the work that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I got in, in the early in my career, I got, I got into a fight with my art director, and she took all the all my credit off of the book that I had been working on, or at least significant parts of it. And so I've never, I've never forgotten the sting of that. So I want to be very, very clear where and give credit where it's due. But you know, around the around that time, Mike was getting super interested in. <laughs> I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Uh, it was getting super was super interested in humanitarian work and bringing mapping to areas that were not in traditional kind of infrastructures. So those were things. And so he started hanging out with people who work in disaster zones and refugee camps and, and things like that and was thinking about ways that those challenging environments could be could be mapped. That was his it was his kind of humanitarian street. And so he put together and he started hanging out at Camp Roberts in the American West where they were doing field tests for how to do mapping of places where there was no internet handy. And so that's where that idea came out. The basic idea is that you want a tool to be able to map places that you're in where GPS doesn't work, or perhaps GPS might not be appropriate. So, for example, it's a lot easier to go into a refugee camp with a clipboard and a piece of paper than it is to show up as a Westerner with your fancy GPS equipment that you may or may not be able to use. Gotcha. So really the idea was was to be able to, 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 to show up at a place with a piece of paper that bore some relation to the place that you were in, draw on it with your hands, and then, and, and you know, in pencils and paper, and then you could take that back to a place where there was internet and you could you could do it more more readily. So there was a whole pipeline and flow around printing out this piece of paper. It got its own QR code. It got its sort of special registration marks and things like that. So that the, when you scanned it and re-uploaded it, the software would know where that piece of paper was and it would drop it onto into, into an open street map editing environment. So you could then, you know, write the addresses down or, you know, put, you know, drop the fire hydrants in or uh, put the refugee camps, uh, the tents where, where you would put them. And so, and it was, it was all about making that flow work better, or I should say it is all about working, making that flow work better so that you don't, you don't have to walk around, you know, and you might want to, you might be in a place where it's dangerous to bring a GPS device, you know? So there, there was, it was just a, an attempt to try and open up and, and it runs through all of Saman's work is just to try and make information easier to, to access, easier to upload, easier to consume. Uh, so that was that was how that fit in with our practice. But yeah, it's still up and running. I mean, you know, the, the, we need to kick it every once in a while. Alan knows more about this than anybody. But um, yeah, Seth uh, Fitzsimmons uh, deserves a lot of credit for that. He got it. He got it to uh, to a place where it would just it just runs. And uh, Sean Sean Connolly uh, put together an amazing set of tools that that let it just kind of let us kick back and watch it run. So it's been it's been amazingly prolific. I mean it's 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 used all over the world and uh Alan Alan pointed us to a to a quote. He said that it was this was in the in, in the Congo uh where the people there said this is the the first uh, the first cartography of Lubumbashi since the Belgians left. So it's really it's really embraced yeah. by, by in areas where there's not a lot of what we would consider traditional mapping infrastructure. That's fantastic and uh I think the whole community should be grateful to you guys, not only for building it, but for keeping it running. So you guys have got an absolutely knockout list of clients. And, and I know that you're not ready to talk about Facebook at the moment. Hopefully, we'll get you back on the podcast in, in six months or time or a year's time, and you can talk to us about the whole Facebook project. But what are a couple of your favorite design projects? Alan, give me one of your one favorite. You can only get to choose one. <laughs> I, 
I'll, I'll pick one I think that has had multiple iterations. If that if that doesn't break the rules, but yeah, no, the, uh, <laughs> uh, we actually have some yeah some repeat clients who just keep coming back and just keep we get to keep doing amazing work with them. And one I really love is the Audubon Society. And this is one of the first big ones I think I worked on in the first year of being at Salmon, and we've kind of kept coming back to it. They have their GIS experts that are making models of where they expect birds are going to be found in the future based on climate change and the way that, that their ecosystems are going to be be influenced by global warming. So they just gave us this massive hard drive of like hundreds of rasters for each bird species that they track showing in detail, like all the climate and the elevation and the precipitation, all these things and these beautiful, wispy, blurry maps of uncertainty of where all these birds are going to be in, in 80 years. And it was, I think, I think back of that as like a great project where the data was amazing. The people to work with were amazing. It was an important story. It was easy to make something beautiful, but then also it just was really rich data that just we could keep pulling out supplemental data visualizations based on top of that map data. Yeah, and every few years they've come back to us. We've, we've kind of revised the maps and there's even a spinoff where we were, were making these this data viz on the outside of a wall on this art museum in downtown San Francisco from wow. this Audubon data. So like, that's one that I really is probably one of my favorites of all time. I can see why. And what about you, Eric? What's your favorite? And even though you're the boss, you only get one. I don't know if I'm the boss. I'm trying to get out of the way mostly. I, uh, I'll just say the thing I love about that Audubon work is that it makes the conversation around climate change just a lot more nuanced. You know, it's not that it's not a question of we're all doomed as opposed to nothing's going, nothing's happening. It's about the sort of specific granular detail of where those birds are going to go and that some birds are going to get more range and some are going to get less. It's, it's a it makes the conversation more nuanced, which is a big aim. But yeah, the project that I'm most jazzed about at the moment is still um, work that we did with the Getty Museum in Los Angeles about the work of Ed Ruscha. It's pretty well known that he drove up and down the Sunset Strip taking photographs from his uh, from a truck and stitch those together into every building on a sunset strip. But what's less well known, or at least until the project launched, is that he drove up and down the whole length of Sunset Boulevard, which is 23 miles, taking photographs of both sides of the street. And then he did that every two or three years for 50 years. So we have a we have a portrait of a city. You know, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of photographs that the Getty has um, has acquired, and they um, have been steadily going through the Herculean task of identifying the footage scanning it, geolocating it, running it through optical character recognition software, running it through machine vision, you know, connecting it to parcel information. I mean, it's just a stunning, stunning archive. And what we built was visualization of it and an interface into it and a way to try and expose people to it and, and give them a sense of what what's there. And you can watch, you know, you can watch the rise and fall of Tower Records. You can see who was on the billings at the Whiskey Agogo. You can see how long the Whiskey Agogo was actually closed instead of what it says in the newspaper. You can track the growth of all the palm trees along Sunset Boulevard. You can find out um, how many strip clubs there were. There's this amazing data set in it where all you find all the all the locations of the word don't. And those are all photographs head on of don't walk signs that, of course, are saying don't walk as you drive past them, because otherwise you would have been running a red light. Yeah. So there's just nugget after nugget after nugget there. There's there's photographs of Ed's son 
holding up a sign that has the name of the the, the reel that they were on and it has the date on it. There's there's places where you can see the 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 hands of the person that's driving the truck to keep the sun out of the lens. I mean, it's this it's this kind of in, in some ways it, it predates Google Street Maps, but it also predates this idea of a kind of hyper object, which is a, just a a thing that's by definition impossible to wrap your 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 senses around. Um, so it's been a really wonderful experience to be able to track those. To be able to build a, a device that that shows you how amazing things can be if you just leave the camera on, right? But also how ama- how much amazing data you can get from a collection of photographs. Yeah, you know, I totally. mean, I was thinking as you were talking about this, you know, that yeah, it's it's sort of it's a precursor to Street View, but in a sense, it's much more than that because it's this historical record, and it's also that. It's not just Google who can use machine learning to mine information from imagery. You know, the Getty are doing it and producing this sort of incredible archive of historical information as well. It's brilliant. So, guys, you know, I knew this was going to happen. You know, we're sitting here. We're only halfway through the topics we wanted to talk about, and we're running out of time. So, but I know, Eric, that there was, you know, I was going to ask you what's in the future for, for Stamen. And I think just before we finish, let's just very briefly touch on what you see coming up for Stamen in the next few years and what are the issues that you're considering. Yeah, and I hope Alan will get to speak too. You know, we're, we're in this, I mean, I hate that every, conversation is about the virus but you know we're in we're in a moment where our relationship to digital material our relationship to space our relationship to to connecting with one another is 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 never going to be the way that it was so i want to be involved in that i want to uh find a way <laughs> I, I do this often i work backwards from a from a headline that i want to see written and i want to i want somebody to write an article in 10 years that said the response to covid would have been very different without blank that Stamen did. So <laughs> I'm looking for that. We've taken a good solid whack at it with some work for Facebook and for UCSF of being able to to try to find ways to explain to people in a rational and calm way what's going on in the world, you know, who's moving around and, and where they're moving. I'd like to do more of that. Um, I just feel like there's we're going to have to find a, some way to grapple with this notion of a changed sense of certainty. We're, we're doing some work with uh, COVID tracking right now, and, and it's just the shapes of the lines that are, are going up and going down in relative amounts are going to determine whether we get to open society, reopen society or not. And it's, it's tough to imagine something other than climate change that's more important than that. So I feel like there's a I, I can remember going into the offices of the New York Times and trying to get them to do point and click maps. And they thought that people didn't know how to use them. So that, that, that time is clearly gone. And so we're in this amazing age where all these kids are being brought up as computer literate from the very beginning. So I think we're, the, the future for, for us is to try and find a way to stay relevant in that space. Um, and mainly, I just want to keep working. Okay. And Alan, you get the sign off here. What's in the future, oh. design-wise? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I, I wanted to make sure we had a chance to mention is that as as I think the studio is hitting our 20th year and we're starting to like be more introspective and thinking back about what we are as a more of a mature studio, a lot of the things we've talked about with our the base maps and with supporting field papers, these are all things that, not to be a downer, but they, they can be hard work keeping them going. And we're trying to think harder and be be more honest with ourselves, like, can we 
How, what does it mean to support these things in the future? There's a lot of bug fixes that we just never get time to do. There's, at some point, these things are just going to break and we won't know how to fix them. So we're, we're trying to think, like, how do, we, how do we keep maintaining these things? How do we kind of reengage with the, with the community, see if there's other people who want to support these? Is there, is there some, other, you know, some other organization that would love to be the forever home for field papers? Is it, is it with us or is it with someone else? These are some things that we're going to be trying to think about and maybe have a better plan about in the future rather than just like cross our fingers and hope it keeps working. Yep. I mean, they're not, they're not cheap to maintain, right? It's like no. in the order of, it's in the order of yeah. several, you know, you know, 50, $60,000 a year. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we're, I, I'm just, I'll just second what Alan said. We need, we, we would like some help because it's, it's been great and it's a fun, it's a fun thing to have made and we're psyched about it, but we can't keep running on the backs of statement forever. No, I think you're quite right. And I think I spend more time in the open source, the OSGEO community, than I do in the OpenStreetMap community. But across both communities, there's this enormous belief in free without mm -hmm. an understanding that some, that virtually nothing is free. Somebody else is paying the cost. And, um, yep. and you know, it's, you know, it's great to be able to contribute towards the cost of these things, but when you're carrying the whole burden on one on one organization's shoulders, that's a heavy burden to carry. And if it's going to be sustainable, it really needs to move beyond that. So I think it's a great discussion to start. And hopefully somebody listening to this podcast may well get in touch with you. And if they want to get in touch with you, Eric, how do they get hold of you? We're easy to find. You can email us at info at stamen.com. Everybody who works at the shop will see that. That's our main conduit. We're on all the usual places, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Alan and I are always looking to connect with new people. And so we welcome, uh, you know, we, 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 we like to measure our response time in minutes, not days. So Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I noticed that when I reached out to Alan and suggested an interview, it was like, bang, he was back. And we're... We're seven-hour time difference between the two of us, but he was on it immediately. So, Eric and Alan, it's been great talking to you. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully, you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.